Hello, good evening. Uh, welcome to Artist Space Books and Talks. Uh, my name is Harry Burke, and I'm assistant curator at Artist Space. Um, apologies for the late start. We're blaming the metro system. Um, so I'm going to keep introductory remarks brief because tonight's discussion, Artists NYC is not for sale, is an attempt to get a wider range of voices in the room on the subject of, of the, on the role of, and complicity of artists within gentrification in our city. This event is part of Decolonize This Place, a three-month project organized through December 17th by the collective MTL Plus that sees artist space books and talks converted into an action-oriented community space that addresses five interwoven strands of political work, namely indigenous struggle, black liberation, free Palestine, global wage workers, and degentrification. Before handing over to Amin Hussain and Natasha Dillon of MTL Plus, who will be helping to facilitate the discussion tonight, I'd like to thank Common Practice New York for their support of Decolonize This Place, and the Friends of Artist Space and the Artist Space Program Fund Artists for their support of our programming more generally, as well as all of you in the room tonight, and especially those who are returning after last week's discussion, Chinatown is not for sale. Thank you very much, and it is my pleasure to introduce Natasha and Amin. Welcome everybody to decolonize this place. Um, I want to start with giving a huge shout out to the land and water protectors at Standing Rock. And um, to acknowledge that we are on occupied Lenape land. And so I think that's something important to start with. So um, today's conversation is the second in series, as Harry mentioned, along one of our strands, de-gentrification. Um, last week we had uh, Chinatown Not For Sale, and a huge shout out to Chinatown Arts Brigades and the community members and CAV and all the organizers who showed up for that conversation. So um, gentrification is accelerating, displaying working class communities of color at a rapidly quickening pace. It is a crisis driven by real estate industry and facilitated by City Hall. Uh, we know what our cultural ministers are also doing with that. Um, the incentives of developers and the changing makeup of the city are turning artists involuntarily or otherwise into agents of displacement. Artists and galleries are part of the problem from Chinatown to the Bronx and beyond. So um, I want to begin with asking who's in the room? How many of you are artists? Wow, nice. <laughs> Um, how many of you are organizers around gentrification? And how many of you are organizers around the city? <laughs> wow, that's, that's amazing. Okay. And how many of you work in galleries or art institutions? We dominate. Come, come. <laughs> wow. Okay, so um, you know, I'm not going to take up too much time. This is amazing. It's great that we're all coming together. I think this is the important work that we need to do as a community um, and think about the next steps. Um, before, um, you know, we, we have a, a bunch of, this is not a traditional panel. You know, we have some constructs around the space. That's why it looks like this. But what we're hoping is that each of the people here speak for five minutes, give us a little introduction around, you know, just the framing of the conversation today. And then we're going to open up the room with the respondents and then, 
uh, comments and questions. And one of the things that is very important is that we speak in the I and not the we. We respect each other. Um, that's something extremely important. And that we throw the questions to the room. We, uh, we don't direct them to one person. We throw the questions to the room and we hope that we get out of here with a really good conversation. Um, and before going on, I'm just going to say, if you want to plug into the work that happens here, show up every Saturday at 3 p.m. Uh, we have an orientation and art action assembly at that time, and you can plug in. One thing, because I know people may not make it to the end, but you should, we will have posters uh, designed and screen printed for you on newspaper, on newsprint, available to take on your way out if you make it through all of it. And then you plug into the amazing organizing that's happening around the city. I would just request the panelists to introduce themselves in the beginning and what your association is, and then you'll go on from there. Yeah. Raquel, do you want to start us? Yes. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name's Raquel, and I'm here representing the Ridgewood Tenants Union, and Queens is not for sale. Uh, I've been given five minutes, and so I should just start by saying, soy peruana, was born in Peru, raised in Queens, lived in Queens all my life, and I started the Richwood Tenants Union in 2014 because I saw uh, proposals coming through the pipeline in my neighborhood through the community board where these outside developers are trying to come in and rezone our industrial zone to residential, right, to potentially build luxury housing. Um, and I thought that was wrong. And so I started talking to my neighbors. I started door knocking in my neighborhood. And I started learning that people were being harassed. People's uh, leases weren't being renewed in their rent-stabilized apartments. People weren't getting repairs. And I thought that was up. And so me as an organizer, um, I've been a community organizer now for the last 10 years. It's the only thing I've ever done. Um, and it's the only thing I know how to do. Um, and so I thought, you know, let's, let's organize tenants in Richwood because many tenants are being displaced. And us being right next to Bushwick and off the L uh, makes it even easier for us to gentrify in a way uh, more rapid manner. And I also started noticing that in Queens, um, Unlike other boroughs, there's yet a strong movement of organizing and activism, unfortunately. But now, you know, people are calling Queens the next frontier, the new frontier, right? And it's my home. I don't consider it a new place that people need to discover. It's where I've lived since I was eight years old. And I want to fight and protect it, right? And I want others to resist as well. And so I, as an organizer, I'm taking that role upon myself to talk to my neighbors, spread the knowledge about people's rights, about organizing in my neighborhood. And now I want to spread it Queens-wide, right? And so me and a couple of other Queens folks, like Aureli and Sarah Quinter in the back, and Tania Matos and Jocelyn Atahualpa, we are organizing a group that's called Queens is Not For Sale. And so last October, uh, this past October, um, well, actually in late, late August, I learned through a friend in Richwood, he sent me an email about how Schnapps Communications, which is one of the largest communications uh, groups in, in Queens, and they have like 18 small community newspapers. Um, they were organizing a real estate conference in Queens associated with Rebney, the real estate board, and anyone who's in housing knows that Rebney is the devil um, because they're all about you know, how developers can continue to destroy New York City and take out and, and and just phase away low-income, working-class people in New York City. 
um, by evicting them from their apartments. And so I found out about it and I put out a call to organizers that I know and tenants that I know in Queens to come and do something about it, to protest it. And so the first meeting we had was in early October. It was three people. It was Priscilla Stadler, who's an amazing artist based in Queens, and my friend Caitlin Shan from Richwood. And we talked about how we need to do something. We need to protest this real estate conference. And so the next call I made, it was 28 people from all over Queens, really beautiful, like artists in the room, uh, tenants in the room, and organizers that I knew in Queens. So we organized. We, in three meetings, in three in-face in uh, meetings, and two phone calls, and a lot of emails back and forth, we organized this disruption inside the real estate conference that took place on October uh, 5th. And we made a statement, right? We don't need we don't need developers to come in and dictate what needs to be built in our communities. We know what we need in our communities, right? We don't need more luxury housing. We need daycare centers. We need community centers. We need cultural spaces where people can build and learn and come together and grow as a community. And so we're organizing this thing called Queens is Not for Sale. Um, I should also mention, you know, Queens, they're talking that, they're saying that Queens is the next frontier. Um, and which is why we're being bombarded with predatory equity. And predatory equity is basically the practice of uh, firms coming in um, and buying uh, rent-stabilized buildings at really inflated prices. And so that's happening. It's happening in Elmhurst. It's happening in Jamaica. It's happening in Corona. It's happening throughout Western Queens. And this is the kind of these are the kinds of practices, these predatory practices that we need to be fighting against, right? And building a strong, powerful movement of resistance so that we can fight back against the, de uh, the developers that want to um, just squash us. Is that five minutes? <laughs> what? Fire, fire. <clears throat> so hey, everybody. My name is Anthony Rosado, born and raised in Bushwick. Um, was second oldest of five uh, to a mother who raised us with under $10,000 a year. So I just like to say that when people consider um, words, right, like progression and affordable housing and things like that. Um, very similar to words like cutting taxes and no child left behind and stop and frisk, right? Um, so I have a couple of hats that I wear, but before I tell you what hats I wear, I want you all to be cognizant of like what energy we have in the room right now. So if um, I could have everyone from, if you were born and raised in New York City, stand up. Uh, I'm good, I can put that. Thank you, though. Word. Look around. Stand proud. We still here, y'all. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, can I have all the people of color in the room take a stand, please? We are also still here. Give us a round of applause. Go ahead. Now I'm going to do one uh, last really quick uh, activity, and this is a standing thing. So uh, please stand if you, you have lived in New York City for over 50 years. Over 50 years. One five? One five. Zero. Five zero. Five zero. Yes. Very good. Thank you. You can sit down. Word. All right. If you have been living in New York City for under 50 years. All right. Wonderful. Now stay standing if you have lived in New York for under 40 years. Under 40. Under 40. Oh, under 40. Under. under. <laughs> okay. Have lived 
in New York for under 30 years. Stay standing if you have lived in New York for under 20 years. Under? Oh, under. Under. It's not that complicated, y'all. For less than 20 years. Okay, sorry y'all, it's a little confusing. So the first one is if you lived over, stay standing. Now stand if you live for under 50 years, right? Under 40 years, under 30 years, under 20 years, right? Under, stay standing if you lived in New York for under 15 years. Stay standing if you lived in New York for under 10 years. Wonderful, you get it now. Stay standing if you lived in, no, I'm not being facetious, like, wonderful. Like, all right, all right stay in New York if you've uh, lived here for under five years. Okay, stay standing if you lived in New York for under four years, for under three years, for under two years, for under one year, for under nine months. No, it's real, y'all. Get the tea. It's real. For under six months. It's okay. No shade. This is the, this is the realness. We have to be real. We have to be present about what we have in the space. They came to the for best under spot right months. off the bat. That's great. Wonderful. For under one month? Yesterday. <laughs> All right. Okay, so now I'm going to go through this really quickly because I have less time, but I think it's really important for y'all to consider, like, when you go to new spaces, who's there? Mm-hmm. You can't just, y'all just came into the space and sat down. That's crazy. <laughs> to me. All right, so I'll go, I'll do, go through this quickly. Uh, I wear five hats. Um, I am the first native Bushwick member, uh, core member of Arts in Bushwick since its inception uh, 10 years ago. I am also a program coordinator for an African Diasporic Cultural Arts Academy called IFETAYO. I'm currently organizing with um, Pati here who grew up across the street from me and I did not know. Uh, We are organizing uh, uh, an illumination project that she'll further explain uh, with an organization called Mi Casa No Es Su Casa. Um, I'm presenting a series called The Testimonials Project that has two children. One, chil- one child is called Gentrify Conversations. And those are, yeah, that you're right, that's cute, right? So it's Gentrify Conversations Acknowledging Complicity. So the varying ways that we can acknowledge complicity specifically within arts-induced mass displacement of black and brown low-income families. I'm specific with what I'm doing. Um, the other child is called Testimonials of a Gentrification. And that child is a performance series where marginalized um, artists and youth get to present testimonies. So a testimony, right, is an individual to- storytelling of your struggles and your triumph. Whereas a testimony is an individual or group's storytelling of a group's struggles and triumphs. Um, so the next one of those is in December 2nd. Um, uh, the artists that are presented are predominantly native to New York, but that's not a qualification. Um, I'm just looking to give marginalized artists platforms to speak upon their experiences with displacement. Um, and the final hat that I'm really, really, really had to, glad to wear, um, and I'm so glad to have met Shalyn through the process, is decolonize this place. Um, nothing's ever happened like this before in all the history that I've read on you know, grassroots community organization against displacement uh, and, of course, the larger issues. Um, so this is big, and we're not going to take it lightly. Um, so yeah, how much time do I have left so I can know? One minute? Oh, let's go. All right. Um, so the one major thing that I want to say, are there new, new events and new organizations popping up every day? They're going to overshadow ongoing projects. 
when you get here or when you start a project, look and see who already has projects going on so that you don't go out and be like, oh my God, I need resources. And then like, let's, let's give him resources. But she needed resources. And she's been here for like three years doing this project, right? So right now, one of my major goals is to be here. We need people to recruit for Mikasa no Sukasa. Why? It's an illumination project, and Patty will go more into it, where you, basically, if you Google it, there are signs that say, no me mudo, right? Gentrification is a new colonialism. And during Christmas time, these Christmas lights and black boards are shunned through apartments. Imagine the power if that spread across the city. I'm over trying to be like, oh, let's fight legislation. Like, word, we can do that, but we also need to be with our peoples on the grassroots level, which is really important. Um, the final thing I'll say is that uh, a very, very, very good friend of mine, Liam, who I'm now um, going to be collaborating with, uh, he gave me this book. He works with this new organization called Either Art, and uh, the book is The Next American Revolution, right, uh, by Grace Lee Boggs, who is wisdom. And in it, she says, this is the end of the epoch of rights, and this is the beginning of the epoch of, of uh, excuse me, responsibilities, yeah. right? And so that made me think, and I was talking to another organizer um, uh, who was a part of it, and we were saying that, like, I think it's amazing that right now, you know, a revolution doesn't need to happen. Because what do you say, right? A revolution is going back to the beginning. We need an evolution. And something we haven't seen before, right? Because we're so used to like, oh, like a physical, physical evolution or like an industrial evolution. We need a mental evolution. So join us. Recruit. Don't start something new. Thank you. Hi, my name is Patti, and I'm repping Mi Casa No Su Casa today. Um, so thank you, Anthony, for some of the info that was given already on it. Um, I'm going to start from a little bit from the beginning. Uh, Mi Casa, OK, so I am. I was born in Ecuador, but I was raised all my life in Brooklyn. I was, I was brought here when I was eight months old, and I've been here my whole life as in Brooklyn and, and in Bushwick in particular. So. Uh, we have a home. My parents bought a home a long, long time ago when homes were still affordable to buy, uh, one of these fixer-uppers in Bushwick. And, uh, well, you, as all of you know, Bushwick is ground zero for all of what we're going to talk about today. Um, the art, the murals, everything. Bushwick is the place to be for art all of a sudden. And, and we know that the art and all these murals, although beautiful and everything that, uh, that it, it made to the community, it actually dis it was used as a tool to displace us, to displace our people of color, our working class communities in our neighborhoods. And there are vultures, real estate developers everywhere trying to buy up these homes and, and you know, take away the, the homes that are already there from people who, who have been there you know, their whole lives and selling them for millions oh, way over, you know, again, after they buy them. So they're being exploited either way. So Mi Casa No Se Casa started this way. I have, for a few years now, since Bushwick has been gentrified and, and really, really pimped out by the art industry, uh, we, um, at my home, we keep getting, we receive these letters, these letters from different developers asking to buy our home. Like we're gonna go, like where are we gonna go? But so they, so they keep sending these letters, and so, and I was looking at it, and I was just like, okay, well, all this art is out here. I'm gonna make my own art thing. And so originally, the, the idea was I was going to take all these letters and pamphlets coming from all these real estate agents trying to buy my house, and put it outside my house. Um, 
like as a collage and then put something like fuck you or something like that outside my house. <laughs> uh, so I had been thinking about this, but I had, uh, I had already been starting to organize. I actually do immigration uh, rights work and I've done, um, I went to law school and whatever, but like, I, but I was very disillusioned, obviously, and I went to and I started um, doing a lot more organizing work, and especially at, at the space that just opened up um, maybe two, three years ago, uh, uh, which is called the Mayday Space, which is a social justice center in Bushwick. So, which a lot of us have organized out of, um, and we still organize. Mikasa no Sakasa is based out of there. Um, so the so while I was organizing there, I met a lot of other you know fellow Bushwick uh, friends of ours right here: Anthony, Will, some somewhere in the back, Bruno, Sarah, all these native New Yorkers who were trying to do good for the community. You know, so uh, I started telling them about my idea, and uh, somebody had mentioned to the at, at the beginning with the New York City Library brigade they um, to meet up with one of the members to see if maybe I would if I wanted to make a sign like this in front of my house I should light it up and I was like all right so so that's kind of how the start the Mikasa no Sukasa project started uh, then we I just uh, ganged up with a whole bunch of like these native New Yorkers native Bushwick people native Brook more than anything most of our members uh, founding members are our native Brooklyn people right so um, and and we started this project, and, and it's a multimedia project. The project is we create these light signs uh, with phrases that are basically to build uh, consciousness, to build consciousness in, in the communities with different wording, and, and they're very controversial. We've had signs that say gentrification is the new colonialism. We've had, uh, we're, and, you know, uh, what is it? Zone. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm I'm really nervous. So, uh, no no eviction zones. We've had uh, no me mudo. We have a lot of different like really badass signs, and, and we're gonna, we're actually developed. We just had a meeting, and we're gonna have so much more badass signs this time around. So that's why I'm here because I really want to get more people involved, especially from the different boroughs. Because the first project happened last year during Christmas time. We put up these light signs. Um, in homes, we, we, we went out and, and started talking to people in the community, and a lot of tenants in the community, they, they really loved the signs, and, they put, and we, we went and installed them. First, we had a um, community sign building workshop where we invited the community to come and help us create these signs. And then uh, the second phase of the process is we go to and install these signs. While we install them, we bring our own uh, camera crews. So we had a uh -huh. so photograph camera crew and uh, and that's why I need uh, we need more people because we need people to help build these signs. We need people to come and help us with the with the documenting of the thing because the thing the project in itself is a multimedia project. Project. We have a short film that goes with this project where we're where we're showcasing what's happening and um, and we basically we go we film the process of installing them in the homes and then we uh, we document the testimony of the tenants who have been working with us uh, to put these signs up to see how specifically gentrification has affected them and that's all being documented in the short film that is still in, in, in continued process so we're going to continue to do this but we're trying to break it out because last week it was supposed to be only Bush I mean last year it was going to be it was only in Bushwick Brooklyn and in Ridgewood parts of Ridgewood uh, because it's right there the neighborhoods are, ne are next to each other um, but this time we want to have it to be a multi-borough 
project. We want to, uh, you know, bring it, these signs to the, Bro the South Bronx. We want these signs to go to the Queens. We want these signs to go to Brooklyn and Staten Island. We want to go to different areas to show that, because the, the thing about this is that the power of these signs is that they're visible. So it's showing a visible resistance to the gentrification and it shows solidarity between the different boroughs in that way, showing that these signs are coming up. And Christmas is coming up, so we need help. We need people. So, so we're taking emails after this event. We're taking, you know, so you can find me or Anthony or Will or Bruno around here. We're so do your work too. Do <laughs> yeah, mi casa no su casa. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Um, but we. Um, we're, we're still trying to get more people to come, help create these signs. We need, we need your help. Uh, we need, and we need places, strategic places where we're gonna place these signs in the different areas of the Bronx, of Queens, and you know, uh, where, so that people, we want them in front of these fucking developments, you know, because fuck these developments, you know, we want them, we want them in front of real estate agencies, you know, we have signs that read, you know, uh, re realtors equals vultures. We want those out there, you know, so it's like, so we want, um, because we're, we're not trying to be, ha you know, cute with their signs. Their signs are really, they're beautiful when they're up, when they're lighted up and everything beautiful, but they're really, really like powerful and like, we don't give a fuck. We're putting some, some signs up that like, como se dice en español, sin pelos en la lengua, like we're just saying the truth. So we're, um, so that's what's happening right now. We re, we're, and the project we're st is still gonna ongo. We're gonna still keep documenting our own stories too, because that's really important to us as a project as, as native New Yorkers, because for us it's important that, we know that the art in our area and Bushwick and specifically has been used to displace our people, you know, so that's why we're taking art back, uh, you know, which will be New York art, you know, art by New York for New York. Um, and I always say this, but I, I think it has to be repeated all the time. I mean, people are always saying, you know, they love New York, they love New York, but they don't love New Yorkers. You know, so this is kind of where we really are trying to, you know, put our, our foot in and, and bring this out there for everyone, you know, so have this art out there and um, we need your help. So yeah, that's it. Thank you. <laughs> My name is Alicia Grullon, and I am an artist. I am also a member of an organization called Mothers on the Move. I have five minutes to report to you back on situations in the Bronx, and if there are two things that you need to remember, and that is the you as the public you, is that, number one, inequity is not a consequence of housing or policy. It is an agent. And we cannot fool ourselves to think that culture is exempt from that equation. Basically, this is how we're feeling in the Bronx. If you have any questions about that, you gotta do some introspection and some deep analysis of your actions. Because I think the best way to let you know what's going on in the Bronx is by giving you a picture of a day in the life of an organizer for Mothers on the Move. And this just happened on Tuesday. And it happens all the time. So Mothers on the Move was approached by the tenants of 725 Southern Boulevard, one of 40 buildings owned by David and David Portfolio. The tenants approached Mothers on the Move because of the disrepairs that were not being done by David and David Portfolio. Rats, pipes, 
broken windows. So at the first meeting that took place on Tuesday, there were about 20 to 30 tenants. The manager from David and David Portfolio paid a visit. Now you have to understand that this man has not been to this building ever in his life, but he heard of a tenants meeting. Right, he just owns it. So he told the tenants that they The organizer from Mothers on the Move stood up, and she took a picture of him, and she, he took one of her, and she told him, we do have the right to organize. You are not taking care of your building, and I will not be intimidated by you. The manager said he was calling the cops. The organizer said, I am calling my lawyer, and I'm bringing my lawyer back on Tuesday when we have our second meeting here. And at that point, the manager left. They are having their second meeting on Tuesday, and mom is going to organize in two other of David and David Portfolios' buildings. Now, I'm telling you this story because this is how the squeezing out of tenants begins. After a tenant is squeezed out of that apartment, and bear in mind that these tenants are families, they're owning well below the annual medium income. And if you don't know what that is, that is the average that the city uses to estimate what's affordable and what's not affordable. That average contains the incomes of folks who live in Westchester, Putnam, and Rockland County. Right? So it adds up to 50,000. A family in the Bronx typically owns, a, a family of four earns $32,000 a year. In 2015, a study was done. This is a national study around the country. It takes a person to pay for a two-bedroom apartment. It takes them to be earning $19.25 an hour. The minimum wage is $7.25. How many hours does that add up? You do the math on your own. When tenants are squeezed out, they look for people like you in the room, and, I'm, and that's the you, the public you. People who are out of college, people who got a little bit of inheritance from Aunt Jane, people who just graduated from college, people with more resources. So that same crappy apartment they do a nice paint job on, they raise the rent for $2,400. You find two more roommates, the three of you pay $800. That's a bargain for you. That's not a bargain for the family of four who had trouble paying the $1,200 plus taking care of other relatives who may not live in that apartment. That is the reality. That is why it is important for you to understand that when you step into a community. If you're ready for that, you better be ready to work and connect. And connect doesn't mean just saying hi on the street. Connect does not mean going to Trader Joe's or Whole Foods and buying your food there and selling out the bodega on the corner. Because you know what? Bodegas are the backbone of your community. Develop a relationship. And a relationship isn't walking in and demanding organic yogurt. 
A relationship is getting to know a person for who they are and why they are there. That is why this sign matters and that's why it is up in the Bronx. In addition to landlords squeezing out, before mayor, former mayor Bloomberg left, he rezoned 4,000 neighborhoods in the city. And he also called New York City a luxury product. In the Bronx, Jerome Avenue is an area that the current administration wants to rezone. It is an area that measures 153 acres, 74 city blocks. It covers three community boards, community board four, five, and seven. It starts at Yankee Stadium and it ends at Fordham. It is under the four train. Introducing this rezoning, which will change the rezoning from light manufacturing to residential, will introduce 12,000 new residents with an AMI of $50,000, with no connection to the neighborhood. It is not meant for people living there now. That will create an entirely new community board with completely different interests than the people who are there now. It will also destroy the voting of working class people of color. That, it will change it entirely and that will affect your local government. We are in the beginning stages of this. We have not, we're in a pre-Europe um, process. If you don't know what that is, Google, because I don't have time to explain it to you. But an environmental study impact was done, and, and an EIS was done, and what you have to understand with these studies is that they're not done by the community. They are done by the developer or the city. So they are biased. So they do not take into an account the four train, if you have ever ridden the four train, it is packed Monday through Sunday, nine to nine. How do you expect to introduce 12,000 new people into that subway? How do you expect that the land mass capacity is not going to overflow because the infrastructure of that area was not meant for residents, it was meant for light industry? How are your sewers gonna cope with it? How are your gas pipes gonna cope with it? Your electrical not to mention the schools in the area, and not to mention the overall quality of life that we all deserve to have. When you're looking for an affordable place to live, you have to be ready to face these facts and to understand that you have, you may have, not all of you, more buying power. You may move into a different area and it's not going to devastate your life. That's Nancy Mesa. What's up, Nancy? Can we hear her? Say something, see if we can hear you. Hey, everyone. All right. Nancy is calling in from, uh, from Cali, from Boyle Heights. Hey. 
Shout out to the comrades in Boyle Heights. West side. So Nancy, if you could just give us like a... I'm sorry, did I... Can you, can you hear me? Yes, good? I didn't hear the first part, sorry. Um, if, if you could just, so New York is in the building. Yeah, and, thank you everyone for having me. And we're really, we just really impressed with everything you got going on over there. But if you could just give us like a little bit of groundwork of like some of like maybe the recent things that you're dealing with, some of like the, um, the, the problems that you may have ran into. And also, you know, we have Northeast Alliance calling in right after you and maybe talk about how you guys work together. We got about five minutes. Does that work? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that works. Okay, go ahead, it's all yours. Uh, cool, awesome. So thank you all for, for one, having this conversation, especially, you know, um, given that your communities are so, so spread out, especially within the boroughs. Um, so just, you know, like my name is Nancy. I grew up here in East LA. Nancy, okay, can you, hear me? you could just talk a little bit lower so we could just get the sound right. Oh. <laughs> Test, check, check one. Does that work? Okay, so, um, that works? Yeah, sounds yeah, yeah. good. Okay. So in terms of um, the work here in Bull Heights, it really goes back, so the East Side is a very um, renter, it's a very low income community, but it's mostly a working class community. We, what's interesting about, especially Bull Heights, is we do have a very diverse past in terms of being a Japanese community and being a Jewish community, and kind of being like, known as the Alice Island of, of the West. So. Um, so that's interesting for us because what that has meant for us has been really a huge disinvestment from the city, a huge disinvestment from basically um, any government office to our community. So what's really interesting about the East Side is that it's a community that has really has a history of resistance and has a history of fighting back. Um, you know, going back to um, the 1960 Chicano movement, um, we have a lot, right, that history of resistance within our community. In terms of gentrification, what's so interesting, or what has been really so shocking for us, has been really that, you know, coming from a community where no one wants to go in, right, a community where no one wants to live there, where even, you know, our, our city governments won't invest any resources, and now having basically um, the expansion of downtown being a direct effect into Boyle Heights. So folks really wanting to, because they're being displaced from downtown and other areas um, where they can no longer afford, you know, kind of the first generation of gentrifiers can no longer afford the places they gentrified. Um, majority, you know, downtown LA, Silver Lake Echo Park, and are now kind of moving into other areas such as East LA and Bull Heights, which, you know, you would never kind of imagine that anything like this would happen. Um, the fact that Bull Heights is, and they said it's a huge renter community, it's one of our biggest threats. So about 90% of the community are renters. So although we do have folks that own property, you know, own their businesses, there are very few um, within the community, but play a huge, huge voice. Um, so and so really the Fembo Heights came out of this sense of urgency, right? Um, we're a very new group. We actually just, we're gonna celebrate our one year anniversary next month. Um, but it really came out of, you know, us folks 
<laughs> yeah. Um, but it really came out of us folks in the community um, who were other, you know, um, groups, you know, who, you know, are more in the formal, you know, industrial complex who really weren't taking action. You know, for us, you know, that live here, you know, for me, you know, um, at the time I was looking for a nonprofit, but, you know, gentrification affected me every day, whether or not I was at work or not. Um, and I think a lot of us felt that pressure that we definitely wanted to see more direction, more direct action in terms of just challenging the narratives of gentrification, which many organizations weren't challenging. So it really came out of a frustration that we, we saw our neighborhood changing every day and we saw attacks on our neighborhood every day, but we didn't see a, a direct group organizing or a group organizing, especially within the nonprofit space to, to really challenge that. So we definitely felt that we needed to, one, create a space for us that are living here to just have a space to talk about what it means to be going through gentrification. You know, because I think, you know, a lot of times we're ready to go in and fight, but it's gentrification for us. You know, gentrification is very violent. You know, um, you know, for me, I did a lot of immigrant rights organizing, bef you know, throughout my life. And, you know, it's just crazy to see that, you know, we've been fighting to stay here in the United States. Yeah, we can't even stay in our hoods. You know, so for me, it was just kind of wanting to have that space with other folks who are also organizing and really doing dope work around, you know, around the United States, around immigrant rights. But we're fighting to stay in our, in our neighborhoods, you know, and definitely not wanting to be, have, be forced to dis be displaced once again. Um, you know, so in terms of Fimple Heights, it really is a collective of collectives. <laughs> so it was really kind of bringing everyone together, you know, folks doing different works. You know, you ha we have Serve the People doing really great work, Ovarian Psychos, you know, the Vecinos, Ali Bombray, Backyard Brigade, and you know, just community members of Donas, you know. <laughs> and it was together. And one of the things that we say is like, you know, other community groups were okay when all of us were doing work on our own. But the moment that we started connecting, it was the moment that we started collaborating, um, that we really started fucking shit up. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. And um, yes, I think for, you know, for us in terms of the Fumble Heights, um, we just really want to create this autonomous space for community to be able to speak up and to be able to challenge gentrification through the direct action that we know needs to happen, right? Um, we know we need to show a clear message of where the community stands. Um, and like I said, we're, we're new. I know I'm excited that the Southeast Alliance is here on the call because they're actually who we kind of um, shadowed our organizing from because they've just been around so much longer than us and doing great work. Um, so it was also that, right, not waiting around for no one else to do it, right, but just taking 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 things on. Um, and yeah, you know, as y'all can tell, like the DBH is very straight up. You know, we are not apologetic about our direct action tactics. We definitely feel that's what needs to happen. And we're also, you know, want to acknowledge that folks need to release their anger. People need to release their frustrations. They need to voice them, you know, either through actions, through art, um, through poetry, but, or, you know, um, just being involved with this group. But it's also really not about policing people's feelings. And I feel within gentrification is, you know, as folks that are going being gentrified, we are told how to feel. We are told how to act. We are told how to think about our situation. And it's really about us creating that space for us to have the conversation for ourselves and figure that out for ourselves and our communities. Right. Thank you so much, Nancy.
Yeah. <laughs> that was all over the place. I'm sorry. All right, cool, yo, Nan cool Nancy. Yo, much love and solidarity from New York City, V. All right. Thank you. All right, next we have, um, we're getting Sandra on the line. Hello. Okay. Hello? Uh, Sandra? Yeah, can you, can you hear us? Uh, I can hear you. Let me just put, see if this camera will come on. Okay, no, no, no. I don't have a, I don't have a, a video camera on my monitor. Okay, so can y'all make some noise for Sandra, please? And uh, I'm here with Luis Trujillo. So, so uh, Sandra, so we just got off the phone well. with um, with uh, Nancy Mesa from from Defend Boyle Heights, and she was like, "Yo, we love Northeast Alliance. We base our whole shit off of them. Like, mad props to you. You all are the OGs, the veteranos over there. So, um, if you could just talk to us a little bit, tell us about um, some of the work that y'all have been doing, and some of you like." of your successes and we got about five we got about five minutes on this all right okay so can you all hear me yeah. all right great so i'm i'm also here with another another member of of our collective uh luis trujillo so how do you want to start off um maybe we should just talk about what we do okay. hi everybody luis here Yeah, so we've been um, organizing in Highland Park for what, like the past two, four years? Four years. Three years. Three years. And um, responding, obviously, to all the evictions that were taking place in the neighborhood, um, the cultural the cultural displacement of, you know, uh, the people, the businesses, just the, the general air of the neighborhood. Um, and so, you know, what we were realizing, uh, what we um, we were seeing, you know, obviously needed a response. And that's when we got together, started to have these collective conversations to want to understand what was going on and also how to, you know, act upon it. And, you know, these neighborhoods, I think it's a very similar story of what's going on around uh, the United States. Uh, Highland Park is a product of white flight in the 60s and 70s, well, before then. But, you know, solidifying in the 60s and 70s, which we see uh, these very rigid racial geographical boundaries popping up in L.A. where, you know, black, brown spaces are meant to be separated and, and to be more easily policed and surveilled uh, against or away from white spaces. And so... Right now, what we're responding to is this, is this like post-racial era of where these racial boundaries are discursively, you know, um, you know, in word, in name, coming down. But the the lines of race and poverty are, you know, deeply re-entrenching themselves through the mechanisms of displacement and, you know, the concentration of poverty in the peripheries of the city. So outside of um, the general down, downtown LA area. So yeah, what we've seen is mass displacement, mass evictions, um, kind of people who are calculating and strategic about targeting people who don't know their rights, um, who are in also precarious positions because of their paperless status, uh, because of how close they are to, to a social death, to poverty and, and the such. So, um, so what, what we've been doing, uh, 
when we, we began uh, in Highland Park and Northeast LA, uh, definitely gentrification was moving in very quickly, very rapidly. The housing collapse, the collapse of the housing market that happened in the mid 2000s was rebounding. And, um, and the rhetoric, we're, initially we just responded to the rhetoric and the rhetoric that was surfacing was definitely pro-gentrification, that this is gonna be good for, for the neighborhood, that somehow with uh, wealthier residents moving in and new foodie businesses, that somehow it would be good for the narrative. And so what we began to do is just do public actions, new our bodies, use our language, and use our stories to generate a counter-narrative and to generate a, a narrative that questioned that uh, approach gentrification uh, narrative that we saw circulating and surfacing. Uh, so we did lots of, we've done lots of different actions. Um, the actions have had multiple tones from confrontational, uh, uh, we did a series of a, a, a procession, which we're, which Nella made mock eviction notices and put them on storefronts that we felt were gentrifying the neighborhood. Uh, two uh, processions uh, that moved around to spaces within the neighborhood in which that, that were markers of displacement and brought in people who. who who shared their, their stories of displacement, talked about how, how, how the getting evicted, the terms of, of, their, their, of their displacement, and, and how that's impacted their lives. So we gave space for uh, people who are directly impacted. Um, to celebratory uh, and actions, uh, one event we did was a, we organized a People's History Walking Tour. In addition to, to that kind of, those more kind of public, visible, uh, larger uh, actions, uh, we've also done a lot of popular education, used a lot of different types of popular education strategies from hosting community mapping workshops, uh, engaging community members in discussions, uh, which we kind of mapped out uh, the how, how gentrification was, is, was unfolding in, in Highland Park, how it was affecting people, who were the actors and so forth, uh, to, to tenant rights uh, workshops. Um, really, we also kind of just listened to what our local community uh, needed. And a lot of people just wanted to basic knowledge of what their rights were as, as tenants. So we also have ongoing been hosting right workshops thank you so much sandra um okay. there's so then, much of it that sounds just like the stuff that's happening here um right so um, most re most re recently we we have been engaging in community org organizing on a more long-term uh basis so we are working with a group of tenants in a 60-unit building who have organized and are on a on their fifth month a fourth fourth or fifth month of a tenant Right, of a, 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 a rent strike. Wow, awesome. Yeah, we, we're trying to get there here. So t thank you so much for, for s Skyping in and talking to us. Um, and uh, we hope to c continue this bike coast to uh, battle, you know, and keep learning and talking with each other. Um, yeah, thanks again. And nice to meet you, Luis Trujillo.
<laughs> nice to meet you all, all right. too. All right, take care. I'll get everybody, I'll get, every, I'll get you guys their information if you want it. Okay, so Anthony, would you lead us in a shake okay. it off? Um, yeah, everyone, I love that y'all are here listening and y'all are present, but it's like we've been here for a little while. So everyone stand up, everyone stand up real quick. Yeah. He, he's not gonna call nobody out this time. <laughs> reach up, reach up, reach up, and relax. Good, good. Reach up, reach up, reach up, and relax. Really good. Okay, now when you breathe in, let your shoulders rise. So breathe in, breathe in, breathe in, breathe in. Hold it, hold it, hold it. Breathe in more, and let out a sigh. Oh, very good. Shake, shake. Take one deep in, breath in through your nose, out through your mouth. Deep breath all the way to your stomach, and out. Okay, let's sit down. All right. Y'all get settled in your seats. We going back to church. All right, so. All right, I'm up. It's my turn. Drop that beat, drop that beat. We're going to do this shit like grad school. We're going to do a PowerPoint. (laughs) (laughs) I worked really hard on this, so I'm very happy to show it to you guys. Um, This is sort of like a version of it that I did in in UT Austin, but we added some things just for you. Okay. Um, So, yeah. This pun is totally intended. Okay, so, so this is a case study that is centered around a very public battle with the rapper-producer Swiss Beats. On the surface, that would be how it appears, but in actuality, it has much more to do with how the contemporary black art world, predatory real estate developers, and hip-hop artists are currently contributing to the displacement of poor and working-class people In this case, I'm talking about the Bronx. So this is a map of the neighborhood in question. The Mott Haven and Port Morris section of the Bronx, also known to the world as the South South Bronx. Um, So the Bronx lies at the east end of Harlem. Harlem and the South Bronx are cousins. We were separated by a series of small bridges. That's the Lenox Lounge on 125th Street. And Lenox. Uh, so, one by one, we have watched the boroughs of New York City fall prey to gentrification. We watched in horror as Williamsburg ate Bushwick, and then Clinton Hill, Fort Greene, Bed-Stuy, and Crown Heights. It was only a matter of time before Queens came under threat with its proximity to Midtown. Naturally, there was nowhere else to go but up, and with it, all those sprawling brownstones and all that rich cultural legacy, uh, Harlem was on the chopping block too. So the streets and stories in Baldwin's essay, Fifth Avenue Uptown, which if you have not read, you totally need to read, um, now looks more like the Upper West Side. Mm-hmm. The legendary Lennox Lounge, as you see in the photo here, uh, was chased out of his home on the strip to make way for the restaurateur Richard Notar, a former managing partner at the famous Nobu restaurant chain. Um, so I think that uh, this guy, 
uh, was looking to capitalize off the success that Marcus Samuelson has had with Red Rooster across, across the street from the Lennox Lounge, but that was three years ago and it's still shuttered. I just threw that photo of the, of the Whole Foods that's across the street now, just for shits and giggles. Um, so if you pay attention when you're in Harlem, you can feel the heartbreak of the descendants of Baldwin's poor and working class black Harlem that can no longer afford to live in their homes. And you can also feel the joy of New Harlem as they congregate at corner socials and coffee shops throughout Harlem. They are young, black, and successful Ivy League educated intellectuals, academics, writers, finance workers, musicians, artists, chefs, and curators, who you might find on a summer Friday night dancing at Studio Museum's outdoor affairs. They are Harlem's gentrifiers, and yes, brown people, we are implicit. So it was a matter of time before the BX was up on the chopping block, right? Yeah. Ain't he pretty? Enter Keith Rubenstein. Did you make this photo? No, I did not make this. this the, the internet wins again. <laughs> Notice the, the cause piece in the back. Um, so... Keith Rubenstein has this company, Somerset Partners, with his business associate, Chechik Group. They, they purchased two waterfront parcels of land so that they could build two 25-story towers with ground and second floor retail space topped by 1,600 apartments. The development site spans about 1.5 acres. Rents will begin at $3,500 and up. This purchase happened in June 2015, if all of my sources are correct. Oh, and the median income is 18000 uh, So Chino over here is asking me to remind y'all that the median income of that neighborhood is 18000 Okay? Okay. So to add insult to injury, Rubenstein announced that he would rename the neighborhood the Piano District. A conversation with any elder in that neighborhood would reveal that this part of the Bronx was actually more known for being where congas were manufactured for the Cuban musicians and later the Puerto Rican sarceros. That's right. Rubenstein missed that small detail in his half-witted effort to colonize the South Bronx. Despite the opposition from the community, he went forward with this bright idea to rename the South Bronx then in October, to, to celebrate his acquisition, he threw a Halloween party on the Bronx waterfront called the Macabre Suite. Rubenstein wanted this to be a top-of-the-line art party because, as he told the magazine Art and Architect, this was going to be the new Soho, so bro. So he bought in Salon 94's gallery owner, Gene Greenberg, I don't know, Rohatin. That's probably how you say it. Rohatin. And then he, she tapped her artist, Lucian Smith, who created an immersive experience for the partygoers. The result was disgusting, y'all. Uh, I don't know what else to call it. Abandoned cars were piled up with bullet holes shot up in them. 
hobo garbage cans on fire were placed all around the venue for the revelers to keep warm, nice and warm, homeless style. Travis Scott was hired to perform that night, and the wealthy elite of New York City and celebrities were bussed in on yellow school buses to the Bronx. It was an A-listers party to baptize Rubenstein's new Soho and Naomi Campbell, the Kardashians, Adrian Brody, Boz Lerman, the creator of the TV show The Get Down, and many others were there that night, including the director of the Brooklyn Museum, Anne Pasternak, the director of the Bronx Museum, Holly Block, the Bronx Borough President, Ruben Diaz Jr. Oh, fuck Ruben Diaz. New York Nick Carmelo Anthony, who got in trouble with Crown Heights, didn't he? Hmm. Um, and his homie, Swiss Beats, was there. Damn. Yeah, calling it out. We ain't playing. Uh, so guests of the party quickly took to Twitter to talk about how much fun they were having using Rubenstein's party hashtag the Bronx is burning, referencing our painful history in the Bronx when grace, racist, greedy-ass landlords torched their buildings in mass to collect fire insurance money, when families slept with wet towels under the door in case the building caught fire overnight. Needless to say, the BX was pissed and the backlash was swift and heavy. Mm-hmm. In Bushwick, I was told here by Anthony, they called it the Italian fires, but yeah. we'll talk about that another time. Okay, so Take Back the Bronx, together with another organization called Mothers on the Move and People's Power Movement, organized actions with the community under the hashtag, the Bronx is not for sale, for months. For months against Keith Rubenstein, we, we just went at his head. Ma massive protests took place outside of Rubenstein's property. Uh, Sobro, the economic development corporation that rolled out the red carpet for Rubenstein, caught hell from us also, as we brought the Bronx into their safe places and crashed their holiday party at a fancy midtown hotel. Uh, even, even Ruben Diaz was protested heavily and canceled appearances in an effort to avoid confrontation with us. Right? These are two quotes from, uh, from Michael Brady, who I think is no longer with them. It's like one of their directors there. Um, you can see how gross that shit is. He's gross. They need the property value. The internet also trolled the hell out of them. <laughs> Local Bronx artists took to social media with the hashtag What Piano District. Um, shout out to those Bron local Bronx artists who held that shit down. Um, The trolling was so bad that Rubenstein had to literally close all of his social media accounts, him and his wife. <laughs> Even the billboard that he put up caught hell. So needless to say, this was a PR nightmare for him and his firm and his he attempted to discredit us by having his cronies accuse us in the New York Post as being anti-white. It failed miserably because we got white people in the Bronx. Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> and Rubenstein was forced by the BX community to retreat quietly. So obviously he needed a comeback. He had pumped millions of dollars into the property and thousands into Rubenstein Diaz, uh, Ruben Diaz Jr.'s campaign and as Cuomo appears to be grooming him to be a, an opponent for de Blasio. Mm -hmm. Watch for that bullshit. Uh, no, yeah, yeah. So 
In the spring, he hires this contractor, Tim Black. I'm about to give y'all all the bochin shit right now, yo. <laughs> you got LinkedIn and everything. So Tim Black is the owner of this company called Developing Concepts, and through this company, to his property, to that waterfront property where he wants to build his shit. So here's a quote. Rubenstein also plans to help open a coffee shop on 134th and 3rd Avenue, an art gallery right next door, and a clothing design studio at 41 Bruckner Boulevard, all of which should be ready for business in January, according to Tim Black, owner of Development Concepts, the contractor for Rubenstein. So I'm not making this shit up, y'all. The coffee shop we know comes from the owners of three cafes in Harlem, Double Dutch Espresso, The Chip Cup, and Filtered Harlem. Note that the coffee shops are not local businesses or small entrepreneurs, but one investor opening what appears to be small shops all over Harlem with different aesthetics, everything that you, you know, you're, you're a clean cut, a, like type A, you go to the stainless steel shit. You're a bohemian, you go to the other one. We got, we got a coffee shop for all, your, all of your demographics. And it's big capital behind the mall. So this is called a Trojan horse business. That bullshit right there, those are called Trojan horse businesses. Everybody got a sticker? Okay, you got a job. I'm going to tell you what your job is later. Okay? So let's read this out loud, class, shall we? A Trojan horse business is a business that enters a community with the intent of serving and receiving incoming gentrifiers. They often have no desire to engage with the established businesses in the area or to serve the existing community. Trojan horse businesses function as outposts in the Wild West and are usually tied to a developer through business or personal relationships, working in tandem to profit in flipping a neighborhood. They are there to hold down the fort to support incoming gentrification and process. These businesses are easily identifiable. They are filled with mostly students, artists, and intellectuals. Usually, these are overwhelmingly white spaces, but not always. Still, the astute eye can sense the divide, and the race and class segregation is shameful and easy to see on any given weekend in Bushwick, to use a glaring example. Segregation still exists, y'all. Go to your Dominican spot. Mofongo is delicious, yo. (laughs) And it's cheaper, (laughs) y'all. So, uh, Rubenstein is supporting small waves of gentrification until his project of two 25-story luxury towers in the South Bronx gets underway. He's supporting the coffee shop. He also invested in a design studio called 9J a concept store for emerging designers. 9J is curated by Jerome Lamar, who's up there. He's a young, talented black man born and raised in the Bronx. In other words, to complicate things further, he uses us against us and hides his malicious greed behind this young black queer kid from the X. What's his name again? This kid is Jerome Lamar. Oh, Jerome. There are other businesses he is supporting, but for the sake of time, I'll just leave you with the examples that I gave you. But still, supporting these businesses weren't enough. That Halloween party last year went horribly wrong. He needed a makeover. Enter Swiss Beats. Swiss Beats announces in early August that he is throwing a four-day art event in the Bronx sponsored by Bacardi. 
The event would have a massive musical lineup featuring emerging artists as well as prominent ones, and all of the proceeds to be, uh, of the art would go directly to the artists. Beats was championing the idea of cutting out the middleman and advocating for the artists. His mantra, quote, if you free the artists, you free the world, was repeated over and over again during the event, winning him adoration from artists and partygoers alike. They were drunk on the free Bacardi. Um, who took to social media to hashtag this. The event was free and open to the public, and once inside, you would be privy to performances by DMX, Q-Tip, Grandmaster Flash of Melly Mel, Alicia Keys, ASAP Rocky, Young Thug, Fabulous, and many, 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 many more. There was even a fucking Ferris wheel in, on the property. In order to get in, one had to fill out the RSVP on the Bacardi website and wait for an invite. Swiss Beats spoke nostalgically about growing up in the Bronx and how he was happy to return and give back to his, this art experience to com the community 10 blocks away from where he grew up. All this sounds pretty amazing, right? Except the fact that the event was on that Keith Rubenstein's property, on that waterfront property. So that's the flyer for the event, if you never saw it. The RSVP didn't work for many, and it certainly was an inaccessible thing for the people from his old neighborhood, from Mitchell Houses right down the street. The space was barricaded, and police were posted up outside. That fucking precinct is horrible. <laughs> In essence, Swiss Beats was lending his persona, his social and cultural capital as a rapper producer, his street cred as being from the Bronx, and his brand as newly named, quote, global chief creative for culture for Bacardi, to Keith Rubenstein as a way for him to clean up his image and undo the bad PR from the prior year. The Macabre Suite would be a distant memory after Swiss was done orchestrating this Coachella-level event in the South Bronx. We could not let this happen, so we protested him hard. But before we did the protest, he and I spent two days going back and forth on the phone with him trying to convince us not to protest. I made every effort to explain to him the detriment he was causing the community by going forward with this event, but he was only interested in silencing us. So we protested the opening and the closing. A brunch party DJ by an artist I admire very much, Derek Adams. We learned that weekend that the same night of the opening, Netflix was hosting a party also in the Bronx. The premiere of Boz Lerman's show, The Get Down, on the west side of Jerome Avenue, where there is uh, currently a rezoning battle underway, and Alicia spoke at length about that. And we recently decolonized this place, uh, along with Bronx artist Alicia Grullon, who's on this panel, and community activists joined up against the city council, and they ran up in the city council and popped off. Uh, so we launched a massive attack against him on social media as well, and it played out in the press. Swiss hit back with having every MC and hip hop icon you admire and could think of go on record and speak positive, positively about this event. The venue was covered in graffiti by the legendary Tats crew. He had effectively used his clout as a hip hop artist to dig in and support his Black artists lending black art to displace black people. <laughs> so this is images of some of the press about the protests. 
y'all can Google, find it. So in an effort to save face and to combat, to like combat all of the uh, many articles report, reporting on our protests, he gave an interview to Vibe Magazine where he makes the outrageous claim that he halted the Piano District renaming. You guys saw how I gave y'all like all of the context of how we really took it to his head, Rubenstein's head, right? But he stopped the renaming, right? So um, besides that, he also goes on record and says that he commends Rubenstein, the landlord, uh, for pushing his project back because he lost $2 million in the, in the process of pushing his project back. And he also says uh, that the deal is already done, so we might as well go out with a bang, oh. right? I don't think the people at Mitchell Houses are trying to go out with a bang, right? But anyway, if y'all Google Swiss Beast vibes, being an asshole will probably show up. <laughs> <laughs> Vibe Magazine, realizing how ridiculous his statements were, then followed up with a backpedal article, basically jumping on to question Swiss Beast's intentions as well. So it backfired. I didn't have to say shit, he said everything. Um, before my time is up, um, I just want to talk a little bit about what the experience was as an Afro-Latina artist protesting this event. The largest of the two protests was on the opening night, and there were maybe 12 of us, all black and Latina women. We watched in horror as young black professionals turned their nose up at us, some in disgust, as they walked into what they believed was a really good thing, I don't doubt it, or mostly they didn't care. 90% of the crowd was not from the Bronx, they were industry insiders and art world hopefuls looking to network. That we were making a stink about poor black lives about to be displaced at the art fair taking place, there didn't matter. Here was the black bourgeoisie, like in Harlem, poised to displace poor black people in the poorest district of the US. Black Lives Matter did not matter in that instant. Across town, Lerman was celebrating the launch of the Get Down. Lerman boasts that his executive directors are Nas, Curtis Blow, and Cool Herc. Like Swiss Beats, these black icons form a barrier around these white men and protect their endeavors no matter the intention. Herc and Curtis Blow are living legends who have been underappreciated and are aging. To be finally recognized is huge for them. Maybe they can finally get a payday for the art form they helped to create. It's sad that it comes at the cost of enabling these predatory figures. This dynamic is repeated over and over again. Swiss Beats places the artist in his show in a horrible position. What emerging artist is going to say no to the opportunity he presents? Someone who sits on the board of the Brooklyn Museum and is the new black contemporary art world sugar daddy offers you this chance. How can you say no? I understand. This is a position that artists continue to be put in and it is unfair because poor and working class black and brown communities pay the price. The marriage between the creative class and real estate becomes even more complicated when the players are black and Latino. To protest, Swiss Beats felt to many like we were betraying one of our own. During the protest, I even had an older Jewish couple approach me on their way inside. Clearly, they were collectors. They were so confused, and they said to me with all of the conviction in their bodies, no, don't protest this. These are black artists hanging on the wall. 
it hadn't occurred to them that perhaps this might be a fight about class. In fact, I would be so bold as to say that we are not talking about class enough. With hip-hop, I think it's the most obvious. Rappers have been flaunting their illusions of wealth at us for years now. I sent platinum this, Versace that. Anyone who had a critique about this was dismissed as a player hater. They have been grooming themselves to become aligned with the ruling class, class since then. I never thought it would be rappers on the front lines of the class war against their own people, but this is where we are, folks, and it's sad. Hip-hop's origin story as coming from the South Bronx becomes its selling point now. It's no coincidence that Rubenstein and Swiss Beast launched this party the same weekend that the Get Down premiered. It's a concerted effort to create a narrative. So where does that leave the artists? What can we do to shake the developer fleas off of our asses? Consider this example. I'm gonna just let that rock up there and we're just gonna move on to the next speaker. And y'all can just take your time and check that out and we'll, we'll refer back to it later. Thank y'all. All right, um, my name is Sam Possible, and to connect what's going on right now in all these neighborhoods to what de Blasio is doing uh, with his housing and zoning plan, and then going back one step further to Bloomberg. So I'm gonna do all that really quick. Um, but the, the point is that both Bloomberg and de Blasio are using state power to channel real estate investment into particular neighborhoods, and they're both doing it under the cover of so-called affordable housing. So to start with the Bloomberg program, uh, it was a mix of a couple of things. There were all those mega developments, right? There's Hudson Yards, Atlantic Yards, Yankee Stadium. That was one big pillar. The other pillar were those rezonings that Alicia talked about. So it was not a comprehensive plan, it was not even rewriting all the zoning code. It was going neighborhood by neighborhood and block by block and changing the rules about what could be built where and at what height. That's what zoning is. So he rezoned about one third of the entire city in that piece by piece way. And because it was so piece by piece, it was very hard to fight. Uh, he could make deals in every individual neighborhood. If you look at what he did as a whole, he actually downzoned the city. He made it so that you could build less. That's what he did in most blocks. However, he upzoned 14% of the city, and he upzoned it so much that the net was an increase in housing. So those, that 14% got so upzoned that a ton of money and a ton of development came in. And if you look, upzoning is when you increase the amount that you're allowed to build, or you're allowed to build housing, whereas before you were only allowed to have an industrial use. Right? And so it was very much racially coded. If you were white, there's a very good chance that your neighborhood got protected during the Bloomberg years. If you're a person of color, there's a very good chance that your neighborhood got upzoned. So that's how it went under Bloomberg. And the whole thing was sold as an affordable housing program because most uh, of these zonings, especially the upzonings, had a voluntary inclusionary housing program. What that means is the developer gets to build more than they otherwise would have if they include 20% of it at affordable rates. So there were two big critiques of that program. One, it doesn't provide a lot of affordable housing, just 20%. The other big critique, the affordable is not actually affordable. 
right? So we all know that. That was the Bloomberg years. So now we have the, the new mayor, the so-called progressive, the tale of two cities, economic inequality, Bill de Blasio. So what does he do? He does the same thing. It's still inclusionary zoning, only now it's mandatory. So what he did was actually address those two critiques. It is somewhat more affordable than it used to be. And there is going to be more of it. But it's still building affordable housing by building much more luxury housing. And it's still not affordable enough, and there's still not enough of it. But frankly, that doesn't matter that much. What really matters is that every time they do these, it's an upzoning. This thing only triggers in an upzoning. So it only happens when you add more housing to an area than was there before. If a small portion of that is affordable, that means a very large portion of that is not affordable. It's luxury housing. So they're providing affordable housing by adding more luxury development to neighborhoods. And where are they doing this? They're doing it in East New York. They're doing it on Jerome Avenue. They're doing it in the North Shore of Staten Island. They're finding the places that Bloomberg did not upzone that are not yet gentrified or in the early stages of gentrification, and they're allowing developers, encouraging developers, to put a ton of new development there that will bring in a whole bunch of rich people. And we tend to argue about how affordable is the affordable part. Yes, that matters, but not that much, because no matter what, the rents are gonna go up when they add that many rich people to gentrifying neighborhoods. So. On the whole, more continuity than there is change in this program. It's still a reliance on luxury housing to get affordable housing. And 10 years from now, when this plan is done, they're going to count how many affordable units they created. They're not going to count how many units became unaffordable. And that second number is going to be far larger than that first number by design. So we need to fight back. We need to do that at the local scale, and that's often how it's happened. Uh, and there's a real importance to that. We need community-based planning. Um, often the city council member is the single most important person who you can get, uh, to, and, and they actually have more power than the mayor in stopping this thing, so you have to do it local, but it also has to be citywide, because if we only do it local, we have two problems. One is uh, it's hard to do anything than bargain and negotiate with what's being given, mm -hmm. rather than provide a, a total alternative framework. The other thing is if everyone's local, then the Upper East Side gets to do community-based planning too. And we actually don't want them to have the same set of rules that we have, that, uh, we have in working class and people of color neighborhoods. It's just going to become uh, rich neighborhoods protecting themselves. Also, wait, what's community-based planning for those who don't know? Sure. Community-based planning is basically self-determination. It's local communities making decisions about how they want their space to be over time. That is great, but if it's only neighborhood by neighborhood, the rich neighborhoods are going to do it first and they're going to do it hard. And that's actually what happened under the Bloomberg years. The last thing I want to say is that since this is a gathering of artists, um, we've talked about artists and, and last week we talked a bit about gallerists. I just want to mention that the art buyers are a huge part of this too. There's a global boom in art sales and art prices happening right now at the same time as there is a global boom in real estate sales and real estate prices. And it's not a coincidence. It has to do with the upward redistribution of wealth, not only in this country but around the world. And having a thing that you can put that money in that is uh, really easy to speculate on, that can be a tax shelter, that can be a way of money laundering. So art is not just um, a, a 
you know, a beautiful object, and it's not just a commodity, it's also a shell for global wealth in exactly the same way that real estate is. So it's no coincidence that these two things are going hand in hand. Thank you. Nice. Damn. All right, cool. Uh, thanks. Um, the, my name's Chino. Uh, I work with uh, yeah, so I work with a group called Take Back the Bronx. Um, we're based out of X. We're based out of the Bronx Social Center, um, which is like a little uh, space on Prospect Ave. Um, and uh, the, a bunch of different people from the Bronx and also from Take Back the Bronx from that crew have been coming down here um, for. Uh, meetings of a, the, uh, a bunch of different organizations from different parts of the city. That's another benefit of having a spot like this. I mean, in addition to like, look at some of these fucking, these are beautiful fucking battle banners on the wall that have great artists working on them, you know, as part of the struggle. Another great thing is they have a nice basement, so you can host meetings out of that. So th the, there have been uh, uh, sort of uh, meetings of, citywide meetings of, of groups around the city uh, trying to envision what kind of things we could do to, to change the conversation about housing and development in the city and also provide kind of like a, a, a rallying point, a citywide rallying point in the, in the way that Sam described. Um, I'll say just from our perspective, um, with, the, with the Take Back the Bronx crew, um, we, the, I haven't been down to the building you'd mentioned on Southern Boulevard. We've been organizing a bit at, um, that's 725. We've been organizing uh, earlier at 1058, uh, the, uh, where a member of Take Back the Bronx lives uh, a year or two ago. And the, it's, that was a particularly bad building. You had like people living with, you know, black mold from the floor to the ceiling. You had like the landlord skimps on the heat to save the heating oil costs, you know, so people wake up, you know, wintertime, you could see your breath. Like, that's a particularly bad building, but it's also a general story across the city, you know? Like, I'm, I'm sure probably two thirds of the fucking room have had some sort of repair, or some sort of problem in the building that the landlord or the super is not fixed or delayed on fixing, you know? To, to save cost and price. And the, the, from our perspective, we're like, people have to live in those really inhuman conditions um, because the, the housing is a, a commodity and because it's a place for people to park wealth uh, in, in the way that Sam described. Like, to all of us, uh, your apartment is the home and the place that, that you live and cook food and you know supply shelter and also at the same time that object is something that can be reduced to a dollar value and bought and sold and speculated on and used for profit and as long as that's the case there'll be this irreconcilable fucking conflict between those two aspects and between you and the landlord who's looking at that building in, in different ways and artists I'm sure can relate to that with the commodification of art mm -hmm. and the purposes to which it is put so that's been our, sort of on our minds for a while, but it's like, how do you put forward some ideas about how to decommodify housing as a whole? You know? That means you need some way to not just bargain for affordable housing guarantees in the buildings which continue to be the private property of landlords and developers and the financers behind them. You, know? you need some way to contain and roll back the power of the landlords as a class in the city. And then you need to have a path to phasing them out entirely, phasing them out of existence, and putting housing and buildings under popular control as a thing that we all control. And 
and manage and share and take care of based on our needs. You know, based on where we need to live and the conditions we, we, we want to live in. Not based on how much the landlord can suck profits, you know, and then pay off his, his interest rate, you know, pay off his mortgage. Um, so we were really excited to come down and, and work with different groups um, to come up with some ideas. And basically what we came up with is the, what's on the back of your, your the, this cool thing. Uh, and it's up there. The, it's like a living document. We've been brainstorming different points, right? Um, the, it, I won't read the whole preamble, right? But it's, the, it's not the uh, project of obviously a political party or even really established nonprofit organizations, you know? Um, it's a bunch of different grassroots groups. Putting this together as something that can change and evolve, we generate it as we fight together, you know? And our hope is this provides sort of like the signal fire at the top of the hill, you know? It's like people are fighting here, come and fight together. You know, it becomes a rallying point for different groups and individuals. And an answer to de Blasio's housing plan is basically like, fuck your housing plan, we need something completely different. We're going to smash your housing plan to pieces with our collective power, and we're going to build something a lot better. So this is something that, that if you're an artist, you can integrate this somehow into your, in, into your artwork or the way that you understand your crea creativity and your creative work. If you're an organizer, you can bring this into organizing spaces and talk about it. If you're doing tenant organizing, if you're disrupting their bullshit public meetings where they ram things down our throat. Right? You know he's having cultural planning meetings that we should totally like, go to? Okay, there are cultural planning meetings that we can go to. <laughs> sounds, sounds nice, that sounds good. The, but the existing consensus in this fucking city is there is no alternative, right? Whether you're a Bloomberg, neoliberal, independent financier, or you're a de Blasio, I went to Nicaragua once and I'm a social democrat, maybe. Like, there's, there's supposed to be like no alternative to this development plan that's like, please give me some not really affordable housing and I'll let you upzone you know, 50 apartments for Russian billionaires. But we need to crack that in half and split it. And we need to say, there is some other alternative. And at least what we've got right now is the following. That alternative is a people's housing plan, a plan we put forward, which is basically this. One, end homelessness in New York City. You can do that easily. It's not complicated. That involves immediately seizing housing for all homeless people. You can build it new, or you can take it from a warehouse penthouse. Probably the first ones to go, I hope, are the warehouse penthouses in Midtown. And in the meantime, a citywide moratorium on evictions. Two, institute universal rent control. Rent control not for a particular section of apartments in the city, but every apartment in New York City. From there, you roll back rents to 20% of our incomes. I would love to pay 20% of my income in rent. That'd, that'd be great. Three, you transfer distressed buildings to tenant ownership because a bunch of landlords are going to be like, oh, I can't make a profit if you're only paying 20% of your income. You say, that's great. Actually, then you don't need to be in the landlord business anymore. <laughs> so we'll just take the building from you and run it how it needs to be run, which how your profit margin is great. So the, we, there are a variety of channels you could do that. You could do that with the 7A receivership process. You could do it with eminent domain. And there's a variety of legal forms that those buildings could take. And we all know them, cooperatives, mutual housing associations, community land trusts, a variety of shapes that could take. Four, you gotta repair and expand high quality public housing in the city. They're bleeding NYCHA. 
And they're letting thousands of public residents live in this slow motion Katrina and then being like, oh, there's a budget deficit. We can't do it. We're just going to have to sell them all one day because we just can't take care of it. So we need to demand they fund NYCHA entirely. They repair all the buildings. They start building, uh, doing structural repairs on the buildings, building new NYCHA housing, and not no shitty fucking NYCHA housing, but nice quality public housing with some community centers. And I would also say some like community art spaces. How awesome would it be if every low-income neighborhood in the city got its own community art center that they ran democratically themselves? Five, we have to democratize development in the city. And I take Sam's point, actually. Maybe we just have to democratize development in the poor and working class people of color and white neighborhoods in the city. Not, not for the rich. Anyway, <laughs> we need to democratize development in this city. So there's a variety of ways you could do that. Um, you can institute the direct election of community boards. Right now, they're appointed by the borough president. And they, they, yeah, they appoint every like, small business owner and like, church pastor to tell the local you know, community affairs cops what kids to fuck with every week. It's like those are not representative in any way. So they need to be directly elected. And then secondly, they need to have veto power. Right now, even as bullshit as they are, they aren't able to stop anything. So they need to be a body of direct control in the neighborhoods. You need to expand public input in the ULERT process, which is long and complicated, but everyone should understand it because that's how they screw us over. And uh, until those things are implemented, you need to have a full moratorium on any upzoning yeah. in the city. So that's the idea as it stands now. That's a people's housing plan. We got it on the back of this. We'll be making, putting it out in a variety of different formats. Uh, someone brought balloons, I guess, for the release of the housing plan. It's very nice. Thank you. <laughs> that is too nice. <laughs> Hooray! Yo, thank you. Let's fight together. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much uh, for the amazing speakers here. Um, I'm going to begin with the respondents. Um, is somebody from Picture the Homeless here? They, left. they could make it. They left? They left. Oh. Solidarity for Picture the Homeless, yes. Okay. Is there some uh, Michael Higgins from Brooklyn Anti-Gentrification Network? Uh, thank you. Uh, so I'll keep it brief. Um, BAN is a network of different housing groups uh, across Brooklyn who uh, do each their own specific things. Some do uh, direct actions, others do um, more policy work. Um, you know, we've been around for about a year and a half, some change. Um, we've gotten press around doing protests of the numerous real estate uh, summits that had happened across the city. That have always been happening, but no one protested and said that these people are, you know, being hosted in our public institutions while they're trying to displace our communities. And so uh, I'm here, you know, if you have any questions or you would like to talk about some of the work we're doing, I'm around. Holla. Do we have uh, Betty Yu from Chinatown Arts Brigade? Hello. I, I don't know which way should I talk. This way? This way? 
Okay. Um, so thank you so much. You guys are all amazing. Give yourself. Can we just like give them a round of applause? Like really great. So this is really inspiring. Last week we had um, the Chinatown is not for sale town hall that was here. Also packed to the guild to the door and and same tonight. And so it's really amazing that. As artists, you all are here in this room. That means you obviously care, right? You want to do something about it. And so what are we, you know, what, and I think the call to action for everyone in this space is like, what are we going to do next? How are we going to take what we've learned, the tools, the um, a declaration uh, for artists? Maybe we haven't read that yet. Did we read that? No. The housing plan, the, the declaration that we're about to, I guess, unveil. How are we going to take it out of this space, right? Outside of the space of 200 people here. And I think that um, with the Chinatown Art Brigade, we are really inspired by this because I think, I forget who said it, um, but um, if we don't unite together, they're going to divide and conquer us. We know that, right? And that is really clear in what they're even trying to do in Chinatown. Right now in Chinatown, right, there's a community-led rezoning plan that Sam and other folks know about very, very well. This is the only community-led rezoning plan led by folks like tenants, small businesses, folks who've been here for three, four, five generations, Chinese Americans, Chinese immigrants, folks who are from working class communities, immigrant communities, who have put together this rezoning plan in the last eight years, right? Yet, you know, this is a rezoning plan that is a good one that would protect our community, that would, would protect affordable housing. We're talking about a family of four, again, the median income for a family of four in Chinatown is $35,000, $37,000, right? And yet, and so that means rent has to be about 900 bucks for it to be affordable, yet rent is, is as high, I mean, it hovers around three, dollars $4,000, and in a report according to the Chinatown Working Group plan, up to $9,000 for a three be two to three bedroom. Talking about galleries for paying $24,000, $25,000 for storefronts. We have over 100 galleries here in Chinatown, which is why things are coming to a head, and that's why we had to have our, our meeting last week, and so mad love to the Boyle Heights folks who are doing what they're doing, you know, and the work they're doing. But I wanted to say that the, 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 the Chinatown community-led rezoning plan, so eight years later, what the community board is saying, oh, we'll just protect Chinatown core, the very, very small port of Chinatown core. But in the plan, we want to protect the Lower East Side waterfront, the NYCHA housing that they want to privatize, right? And so they can build their luxury housing right in front of NYCHA. They want to build this wall so they don't, they don't want the eyesore or whatever, right? But we're saying, no, you cannot divide the Latino and the African-American and the, and the Chinese and the Asian. We're united in this because it is much more about unity as, as, as working people because we have the same interests. And so in Chinatown, it's very complicated. The landlords are Chinese. <laughs> you know what I mean? The developers, we, we understand the larger systems of gentrification of the banks and the developers um, and the landlords, but the galleries are a key piece because they're, they're doing the art washing and we want to tell them, do the right thing. You do not have to be tools of displacement. You actually can do the right thing. And so we're providing the tools for them to do something about it. And so we're continuing, just so you all know, that how we fit in this is that we're in the next months, couple of months, we're gonna be trying to meet with those that do, that do care, that wanna do something concrete. So they should try to help us to pass this community-led rezoning plan that would protect tenants, long-time tenants. But our major concern has always been the tenants. And I thank you so much um, for what you were saying about what's happening in the Bronx. The same thing, the mass evictions. People are being violent, violently stripped from their homes here in Chinatown. 
discount. Their landlords are letting rats run rampant, letting, you know, giving the heat during the, 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 the summertime to boil people to death. These are people like 60, 70 years old who are ready, they're living in deplorable conditions and the landlords are making it worse to push them out. Mm. Like really, very violent, right? Not only emotionally, but physically violent to push them out so they can raise the rents by 10 times. And so the galleries, just like us artists, we need to know, right? These galleries, maybe they'll be there for five, six months and then they're gone, right? And the big box store replaces them. And so if they don't stand on the right side, they're out. You know, so which side are they on? And last week, I think we, we really drew that land in, line in the sand. Like, what side are you on? And I just want to say that, you know, there's, I'm so glad this is happening because we have to build solidarity across the city. Otherwise, these developers and the landlord class, and the, you know, they're going to win, right? And so the, I'm so glad that this is happening and that we need to continue and plug into the groups that are doing the work already. We don't need to rebuild and, and uh, existing institutions. I mean, not institutions, meaning nonprofit, but collectives and groups that are doing this work already. So, you know, I'm really excited about how we're going to build across the city and across the boroughs. So thank you all for being here. It's amazing. Tanya Matos from Queens Neighborhood United. Oh, she left. She left? Oh. Uh, we talked okay. Um, so um, I'm going to open up the room for comments and questions. And uh, before that, I just want to give a huge shout out to Martha Rossler whose amazing work. Um, so if you have any questions and comments, just raise your hand. Yeah. Um, is this on? Can you hear me? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I was just glad that there was at least some peripheral mention of uh, part of New York that is part of New York City. I'm talking about Staten Island, uh, where I live, in the North Shore area, which is by the one, one of those areas, one of the speakers mentioned it, that's being, I think it's called upzoning. Um, there's, it's, the central part of it is called the Bay Street Carter. Bay Street is like the main artery there. I live in Stapleton, which is one of the neighborhoods, next to Tompkinsville, which became world famous for the Garner disaster. Uh, at any rate, that's part of the thing. And I recently attended a meeting that was focused on the artist world. It's something called Culture Future, Future Culture, which is the public relations aspect of this entire thing. And there were a few artists there. I'm a writer, I'm not a painter. But, and I used to live in Tribeca, which is the ultimate of uh, gentrification. So I'm just glad it's mentioned. Um, and uh, Staten Island is, you know, the so-called forgotten borough. And um, it's happening now in the centerpiece. Uh, somebody mentioned the Ferris wheel up in, in uh, the fake Ferris to be the world's largest Ferris wheel putting London to shame. And that is a centerpiece of one of the most mega development operations there is. So please don't forget Staten Island and I'd like to talk to somebody there. Um, I write a paper called Upfront News and, and I've even given the neighborhood, I've even given the neighborhood a new name which the real estate, it's, it's most of this is happening in the North Shore which is the part that's closest to St. George and Ferry. So you can call it No Show from now on, okay? Anyway, thanks and... Uh Wonderful. Um, I just want to really quickly point out, I'm so glad that you just brought up Staten Island because I was literally saying my homie from Staten Island couldn't make it here tonight. I just want to let y'all know, actions are happening everywhere. You can take part everywhere. Nati con razón. Nati con R-A-Z-O-N. She does a yearly event in the spring called um, La Isla Bonita, and it's a performing arts series that sheds light to the fact that 
this is not not happening in Staten Island. So there is someone over there doing work, and if y'all want to be a part of it, La Isla Bonita. Um, hi, I'm Sarah. Hi, I'm Sarah. Um, I'm from Boyle Heights. Yeah. Um, my organizing background is with the Labor Community Strategy Center in LA and Brothers, Sons, Selves, while pre-transition um, in Los Angeles. And the first thing that comes with these developments are increased policing in the neighborhood and brutalization of the young kids, and that includes in schools, that includes fucking um, metal detectors, kids being like stopped and frisked, um, being handled by like the police, like instead of with counselors because they defund that shit to make sure the kids don't know how to like organize or fight back. I just got invited to the re-art show um, in December, the one that they put the email up right there. Oh. I am also about to say no and email them back. Um, I'm 21. Um, I'm low income, I'm on a full ride at Columbia, one of the biggest like colonist agents on the island. Yeah, yeah. And I can't wait to move back to Boyle Heights and like work from there after this year is over because being, studying art here and it, it's just like fucking be part of where you're living and don't fucking, what's it called? Um, dissociate because you're ignoring all the people that live where you're invading. Thank you. Hi, I'm Andrew. Um, I was, I'm not sure if this is, I can open up questions to y'all. Um, I actually had similar questions. I was wondering if you all could expand on maybe the relationship between policing and gentrification. Um, like, when I'm out in Bushwick like a couple days ago, like I definitely saw a bunch of white people getting off the train and like asking like cops for directions. I'm like, oh, they're like showing them around. This is cute. Um, and I had another question. I specifically for Shalid, like I was wondering like what, how do you think we can bring like our art people in, or is that even possible? Because I don't think they really care. Um, like I think like they're very comfortable sucking on the teat of like real estate agents and like. I don't know, whatever like Genji Club is opening up. I was just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Was that a question for me, Andrew? <laughs> um, so I think, I, I think, you know, that is real, you know? Some people came here to make a career, you know? And they don't really want to look. They have no intention of looking, because to look is to know, and to know means you have, to, you have some sort of obligation to act, right? But I think that a lot of people don't really make those connections. And then I think the majority of people do make the connections, but don't know how to make a difference. And so, like, this question comes up all the time. I'm an artist, what can I do? I think, you know, the first answer is, is that Yo, artists are the only workers, and you are workers, that own the means of their production. If we stop making shit, there is no art world. You see what I'm saying? I will also say that um, there is law, and there is culture, right? So Civil Rights Act gives us 
our full citizenship, right, as black and brown people in this country, but didn't change the culture, right? So we still have racism, right? But we did change the culture of no smoking in bars, and we all decided collectively that McDonald's was gross, <laughs> right? We are culture makers, so we can change the culture. If we make it shameful and scandalous to work with developers, then it will become shameful and scandalous, right? So it's, it's all, and also there's something to say about, um, and this goes back to like collective bargaining, right? So you, anybody, raise your hand if you've ever worked at a place that told you don't show each other how much, don't talk about how much you make with each other, right? And then y'all all go to the bar after work and spend your paycheck and start talking, right? right? It's kind of like the same thing, right? If we don't talk about it, then we don't get to share our ideas and make moves. Right now, everybody's like plugging away at their fucking CV, looking for the next social practice gig because that's trending. You know what I'm saying? Like, like we need to stop thinking of, of ourselves as corporate workers and actually start having conversations. And then we change the culture because we're in a very, very important position as artists in, in, this, in, this, in this day and age. I don't know if that answers the question. I'm going to let somebody else talk about can policing say, in the community. Can I say something about the connection between policing and gentrification, though? Yeah. So I'm sad that Tania Matos and Jocelyn Atahualpa are not here. They're from Queens Neighborhoods United, and they've been organizing heavily against this business improvement district mm. along Roosevelt Avenue and Jackson Heights. And so what they've seen is that along with, like, the... It's heavily like immigrant, working class, a lot of vendors, right? So with this revitalization, there's been increase in patrols from the 115 precinct, I believe. Mm. And and it's you know, it's they're trying to clean up the strip now, right? And so Jose Peralta, who's a senator in that area, has called Roosevelt Avenue the new old Broadway. Um, and it's, it, I mean, it's really ignorant, and he wants to clean it up, and he wants to get rid of all the street vendors, and he wants to get rid of, like, the seedy liquor businesses, and he's doing it through increased policing. And so that's a huge connection to be made right there. Check out Queens Neighborhoods United, because they're doing great work in Queens. Okay, um, could I, I just want to acknowledge it's, um, it's, it's 9.20. Oh, sure. oh uh, I'm going to just open up the floor for like four comments slash questions, and then we're going to take them together and then go that way. So we're going to do one here, then there. Uh, hello, um, sorry. I wanted to comment on policing and justification. Um, I've lived, I just moved to Ridgewood about a year and a half ago, and they have been stopping children. Like the other day I had to stop a police officer from stopping three black children, and I was like, why do you stop them? Mm -hmm. Didn't say, didn't give me a response, just walked away, and I was like, you stopped kids who are clearly under 13, and what, they weren't doing anything, and you had to police them because they're right by the subway? All right, sorry. I have a very, I have a, I've been writing a little bit while this is happening, sorry. Uh, oh, sorry. To start, I really like the people's housing plan. 
Okay. Why? Why are we tiptoeing around the concept that white supremacy directly fuels this gentrification? Why are white people here, honestly, besides mostly ally theater? Especially when every white person in this room benefits from the Homestead Act, for example, and all white, people, all white art after 1900 is basically black or brown face if you really got it down to it. I came to this because I thought this was gonna be a black and brown only thing because honestly, I thought the only role white people have in doing anything about gentrification is re relinquishing power and property as well as giving black and brown people rep reparations that they don't want to talk about. Mm -hmm. and, that's, and there's nothing else they could really do. And how, and I also want to comment on how gentrification affects differently between race and class. For example, I am not a person of color, I am not brown, I am black. I'm not trying to decolonize any space. I'm trying to abolish white supremacy and have all white people be accountable for the white supremacy they benefit from daily. Team reformists and team ab uh, abolish can both exist, but only team reformists with more social capital gets traction and support right now. Also, just a heads up, black and brown people with more class privilege are not on the same level as white gentrifiers at all. I repeat, yes, class privilege is important, but black Putting black and brown people on the same level as white gentrifiers is an act of violence. Um, fuck black and brown capitalists, yes, but they are not on the same level as white people. Like, sorry, white people shouldn't be in the same room if we're really gonna come to bat at black and brown capitalists. Black, black people trying to survive capitalism and acting like white gatekeepers is not the same as a, black, as a white gatekeeper. If we're gonna talk about black and brown people with class privilege, white people shouldn't be in the same room. Um, I had to write this all out so I didn't miss anything. Also, what's up with only maybe one person on the panel passing the paper bag test? The paper. Paper bag test. Oh, yeah. That's all. Let me just say that. Kandia, my family is back. Um, thank you. We're having three more questions just because we want to keep with time. I just want to, this is why I'm acting as a facilitator helping what's happening. This is not an easy conversation. People need to relax. We want to create a safer space. People need to speak about the trauma, whatever space they come from. And we need to hold each other in this process. It's all right. This is a space of resistance and coming together. Thank you, brother. Thank you, person. Thank you. Other three questions, because we also want to honor people's time. And then we're going to bring it back to the panel from what's said. Mm -hmm. And we're going to go from the beginning to the end. OK? We're all good. Good evening. My name is Kandia Crazy Horse. I'm Native American. I don't want to take up a lot of time, but I want to make underscore the point. It's, in response to the exercise, having people stand up and say how long they've been here and so on and so on. Well, as far as I'm concerned, all y'all are newcomers. Yeah. Um, the Lenny Lenape are my Northeastern cousins by ancestral kinship. Mm -hmm. And I just want all of you to remember while you're defending these, these neighborhoods and building these coalitions, that you're all here and able to thrive, I mean, to a certain extent, 
and New York is what it is because we were dispossessed and booted out of here and killed and disenfranchised, and that is still going on. We natives are the most invisible in all of American society. As a Native American artist, I'm amongst the least supported and for whom there are very few networks and spaces to operate. So just remember, you know, the bones of the people on this island and in these ancillary neighborhoods in the boroughs that you're standing on there, <laughs> you know, I, I just, sorry, I'm a little emotional about saying that, but you know, mm -hmm. the, their bones and their blood is in this land. So I'm, I'm not trying to denounce anybody. I'm happy everybody's trying to come together and rectify this problem that faces us all. But um, just remember the, the Native Americans are, <laughs> my ancestors and spirits are, are here and um, still need to be remembered every time you, you go to do these actions. Thank you. Please raise your hands if you want to comment. Hi, my name is Maga. Um, I'm also from Boyle Heights. Woo! Royal Heights in the house. Uh, yeah, it's really beautiful to see the comrade Nancy um, up here. I, I just moved out here to New York City maybe two months ago. So I'm brand new, looking to plug in. Maybe uh, if y'all could repeat like when the next like open meetings are, that'd be cool. But just I wanted to share like a little bit about sort of where I'm envisioning the future of Boyle Heights, but also like building a bridge. Um, it was really interesting to hear about um, Bloomberg, Bloomberg's sort of um, destruction that he's caused in New York City because um, a big part of his plan now, Bloomberg Philanthropies is, actually has this huge um, role in the gentrification of, of LA, of Boyle Heights, of Northeast LA, of the Valley. Um, there's this project called Current LA. Um, it's like millions of dollars are being invested in um, the rezoning of the river um, to create what they've called um, the next San Francisco, uh, grander than San Francisco, right? We all, we all know what <laughs> is going on in San Francisco. Buildings where there's like no one in them. They're like luxury housing and they're just sitting there as people were saying for speculation. Um, and the, the way that this project is sort of being um, sold is through this um, current LA project, which is the LA Biennial, that invited all of these like artists, nonprofits to talk about the importance of water and respecting water. And it is like, it is like bizarre to hear the sort of logic behind it when they're talking about like, um, hmm. re like restoring the LA River to being like a bunch of cute birds and like mosquitoes, but like also getting rid of like all the poor people and people of color around the river. And we're saying like, first of all, it was colonialism and capitalism that destroyed the river. Like, <laughs> fuck if we are gonna accept that that's what's gonna restore this fucking river. And a lot of artists have gone along with it and like folks were saying, right, like part of what, what's been successful in Royal Heights has been like, shaming a lot of art institutions, no matter how long of a, of a history they might have within the community, right? We, we confronted self-help graphics and art in um, Defend Boyle, and in Boyle Heights. Like, we love self-help graphics and art, like a lot of the work that they do and like a lot of the institutional um, support that they've given to up, upcoming like 
um, Chicano artists is like very important, but like they don't get a free pass for that, and and they don't get a free pass like to be ignorant about the role that Bloomberg found um, Bloomberg philanthropies and Bloomberg has had in the destruction of neighborhoods in in New York City, and so like I think uh, to the extent that we can cre like cre like co-create sort of like common discourse, for example, like making it like a point that like if you work with Bloomberg philanthropies, like screw you, and also like. You know, our washing is real. Like, our washing is just real, and we need to be using that word, and we need to be talking about it, like they did in Atlanta. Like those two um, social practice artists did in Atlanta to expose the art washing that was happening there to um, sort of displace a bunch of uh, low-income folks in this, these public housing projects. So, thanks, uh, and I'm going to pass it. We have a bunch of more people. I'm going to request people to be short, just so that we can have multiple voices. Hi, my name is my name is Gina, and my question has to do with um, ethnic culture and how gentrification is impacting authentic ethnic culture. And I find it very interesting that in the areas that are most susceptible and are being very aggressively gentrified. It's where people have established immigrant communities where the culture is so vibrant. And I'm very curious as to um, how developers are kind of re-commoditizing our culture to attract global people. They're like, hey, look, you can now live in Chinatown and get soup dumplings and kind of fetishize our ethnic culture and commoditize it. So I would like to open it up. We're going to take two more comments and questions, and then I'm going to request the speakers to respond if they want to, and whoever wants to respond and be quick, because we want to. Two more, Natasha. Just two more, so we can have time. Go ahead. Okay, sorry. Thank you. Um, Boyle Heights has been brought up quite a bit this evening, and as well as defend Boyle Heights. And when I hear those names, I think of also Union de Vecinos and the Tenants Union and defend Boyle Heights against art washing, and so on and so forth. My question is, I should preface with saying, I just spent a month in Boyle Heights. Okay. And I took it upon myself to sort of develop an initiative to hear the voices of other people in the community who are not necessarily associated with those organizations or the galleries to get an understanding of if there was a way that some of the pre-existing, for instance, like self-help graphics or like a PSSST who are new to the environment could join forces with the organizations in the community and the people specifically who have shown such a great spirit with regards to attempting to have some agency over what happens in their neighborhood to not only ameliorate but to create a model where we can subvert this current conversation regarding arts and arts organizations causing gentrification. So I suppose my question is how the organizations here are going to work with the galleries to join forces rather than to create a circumstance where there's a lot of hostility and there's not really any room for discourse. Because as DBH has said numerous times, there's really no room for talking. They want everyone to get out. And that seems somewhat unrealistic as well as somewhat unproductive. So that would be my question. One last 
Okay. I'm, I'm going to go as quickly as possible. Um, so I'm a videographer and an animator. Uh, I've actually talked to some of the organizers here because um, I'm interested in uh, working as a soundboard for to create videos uh, to broadcast all of your organizations and the work that you do. But as a wise person and as someone who recently moved to Bushwick, uh, I don't feel comfortable working on videos like that on my own. So I would like black and brown individuals who are animators, graphic designers, if you're a videographer, if you have any sort of video, if you would like to organize with me, please hit me up after this is all done. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. So um, I'm just going to bring us to this next end of the stage. Um, we heard some questions. We heard people. We heard people in LA. Now we're going to start from the very beginning. The questions that were brought in the room. Please be respectful of each other's time. We started at, at 7.30. It's 9.30 now. Let's roll through a minute or so and just kind of get your thoughts out. It's a conversation that continues. And right when we get over here, we'll share something about the declaration that's in the pamphlet. And then there'll be posters to take on your way out. Um, yeah, I wanna answer Anthony. the question, I wanna answer the question that the brother here asked in the front about organizations and galleries. You said, uh, I'm trying to rephrase it. You said, can you read, just question it? I suppose my question is how we seek to work together uh -huh. and what initiatives we develop to sort of allow people that represent these organizations be on the right side of this. Of course, yeah. Um, uh, so the first thought that I have for that is like I've done a bunch of work infiltrating, you know, predominantly white artist spaces. I'm the first core member of Arts in Bushwick that is native to Bushwick in 10 years since its inception, which is ridiculous. Um, I think that like I've initially thought you know, for a long time, well, like, you know, how can we get those most complicit in this to, you know, be part of this? And how can I approach them, you know, in ways that are potentially, I've thought before, not hostile? But then I realized I'm policing myself, and I'm also spending so much time going to do the work going to try to do work with my oppressors, that what ends up happening is when I do do the work with the oppressors, I have collaborated with these whitewashing gallerist spaces, and I've just found that, oh, like, I personally haven't had many experiences where I haven't felt like I was exploited or that they intended to exploit the fact that my native Bushwickness as an artist validates whatever they're doing. Um, so I'm in a point in my life right now where personally, like, I'm. T when the sister here earlier said, Google it, I, I, I snapped my fingers because I'm tired of putting that work in and trying to teach you. Teach yourself. I'm going to my community and I'm going to put in work to my community. So, like, I respect anyone who wants to do the work where they want to go to you know, you know, the oppressor because of course the oppressee has to be the one to free the oppressee and the oppressor, but I don't know, I'm in a time in my life right now where I don't want to put any more work into you know, the oppressors and I just want to mainly work with the oppressees, people in my community. I want to spread information here, I want to spread love here, I want to give platforms here, and if you want to do that work, go, do it. I'm tired, I'm done. I'm sorry, I don't, I don't know if this is a back and forth, but that's my answer to the question. Uh, thank you. Please continue and be brief, because we have a declaration to share with the, with the group. Okay, um, so I just wanted to kind of uh, acknowledge 
First, the sister who, who the indigenous sister who said uh, this is Lenape land, and I am absolutely. I, I think that's one of the first things that uh, we all, uh, as people who are doing anti-gentrification work, have to acknowledge and have to take in that per perspective, that native perspective, into uh, into all our work because even. Um, and that's why I, I'm really happy when I first saw the signs from the decolonize this place that it was decolonize this place because that's exactly like if anything all our exploitation and all our you know oppre oppression started there right I mean in 1492 so if anything we um, I think that that message I think that's why even in, in the Mikasa no Sukasa project we, we try to really um, center that perspective uh, into our work. Uh, that's why we had the, the gentrification and the colonization um, signs and, and we're gonna come out with more of that language in order to uh, build that consciousness uh, in the communities about that this, this land is not ours, this land is native. And, it's, and, and also to t try to kind of change a lot of the, the perspectives on different po political issues, not just gentrification, but even immigrant uh, you know, communities because right now, um, with the people who work like in Mikasa no Sukasa, all of us are, are Brooklyn natives. Like we're from Brooklyn, like we grew up in Brooklyn. But we're also we also happen to be you know um, children of immigrants who are of indigenous descent. So uh, and who and our parents or our families were displaced from our original lands in the Americas. You know because of the politics of this country and in this city. You know spe specifically. So and that's why we're here. So we're, we just keep being displaced as, as people of indigenous descent. So um, I think it's important to, to center that in a lot of the, the, the fight against gentrification uh, because the first people that were displaced are the indigenous people, the Lenape, and we need to recognize that this is their land. And um, to, I also wanted to uh, talk a little, and also, yes, uh, with regards to the, the cultural aspect of, of uh, I, I think one of the things, and I think we might have a sign that's going to say something like this, it's like gentrification kills culture, right? Gentrification is genis uh, it's the genocide of culture, um, of what's there in order to place it and make it Manhattan, which has no fucking culture, right? So, uh, and that's what's happening everywhere. That's why we don't go to Williamsburg no more. That's why, you know, and Bushwick is, is it's becoming crazy, and that's why we're, we're fighting back now. But... Um, I, and I also wanted to acknowledge uh, the brother here who was talking about, you know, POC and and you know, black and brown communities and how they need to be. I I I agree with that statement. With with that, a lot of the safe spaces we should have these these conversations in where it, it should be possibly maybe just POC in a room. I think that's that's important to have because we should have these conversations in in places where we think we're going to be safe, right, uh, among POC. But at the same same time, uh, well, not but, but and, I think uh, we also have to prioritize POC, the most oppressed, to be leading these projects and to support those people in the leadership of these projects, um, especially when it comes to gentrification and anything that has to do with oppression. So let's just, yeah, thank you. I'm gonna keep this brief. Um, yes, it is no coincidence we're in a space that's using the verb and asking us to decolonize ourselves. Yes, we do need a space where we need to have these conversations amongst people of color. 
and people who do not identify themselves as people of color need to have this space. There's a wonderful organization called Euro Descent that you can go log into, because if you don't think that colonization and racism has affected you, you are wrong. It has affected your life. If you need to do any other workshops outside of this, there's a wonderful organization called the People's Institute of Survival, and they do incredible undoing racism workshops. Find it and do it. Oh, for a second on the, the police thing, yeah. The, all right, real quick. Abolition. Yes. I just don't think there's a way around it. Yes. Like, the, the origin of police in this country is in the north to police the large numbers of poor people that are created by capitalism, and in the south as slave patrols for the slaves that kept running away and revolting. Yes. Hmm? And th they maintain more or less in that same role today. Yep. So like the, you go to any precinct council meeting in the city and their job is to use the discourse of safety to try to turn some portion of the neighborhood against the rest that are seen as inherently dangerous, which is always racialized people and then especially black people and always poor people. You know? the, so the, the function of the police is to do that and sometimes they do it mean and sometimes they do it nice with, for example, the community policing initiatives that they're rolling out, which isn't, they're never projects to connect with the community, they're projects to construct the community, which is also simultaneously constructing some people as inherently criminal, the, the, right, the whole deal. So the, if you're involved in any sort of anti-gentrification project in the city, I think part of that has to be repudiating the attempts of the state and the police to do that project, but that's also tough because that means then you got to enter into relationships with everybody else in the neighborhood, with poor people of color, poor black and brown people who are dealing with a variety of problems, you know, and like shit happens and people get harmed. And then you have to figure out some way to deal with that through those relationships rather than through the police that are going to say, yeah, I'm going to come help you. And I'm going to also make sure that these three teenagers get sent upstate for the rest of their lives. Um, so, Winslow. <laughs> Winslow's right um, in regards to white supremacy uh, being the top of the food chain, because we all know that capitalism is hinged on white supremacy, right? So, yeah, Winslow. Also, I don't pass the pa paperback test, at least not in this season. Yeah. <laughs> but. I w and I think that it, I could just go ahead and say this, like, Queens is not for sale. Uh, Brooklyn no se vende. Brooklyn no se vende. Take back the Bronx, mothers on the move. There is a variety of black and brown in these organizations. We just up in here, we just up here representing. Don't ignore that. All right? So you just see one, you just see one of many, but this is a black and brown panel. Yeah. All right, so. Okay, before we go to the artist declaration, I just want to remind everybody that we, ha uh, we open up the space at uh, Saturdays on 3 p.m. to plug in for any of the work um, that you're interested in along the five strands uh, that we're working on. Indigenous struggle, black liberation, free Palestine, degentrification, and global wage workers. Um, and I want to just let everybody know that the next Friday, which is November 4th, at 7 p.m., we have a conversation around Palestine, Black Lives Matter, and boycotts. And uh, we'll be joined by Robert 
Robin Kelly, Jasbir Puar, and uh, Mars, and uh, Amin for that conversation. Thank you. Uh, again, this is the beginning of conversation. I just want to say, get your flyer. It has what you need. This is not just a flyer. This has the next steps. And I, I want to read something together before you leave. And it's the last sentence of the declaration, which is an artist's call to degentrify. And I'm going to read that, and then we're going to say something together. As artists, we add our voices to a declaration that resounds in every borough and beyond as communities rise up, find one another, and build a movement to take back the city for the people. NYC is not for sale. I think that's what we've been here for. All right, so, and really quick, y'all still got the stickers that was on your chair? All right, so here's your first action. Welcome to a direct action, y'all. Yeah. Your first action is to find a Trojan horse business in your neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> Stick that motherfucker on it. Take a picture. Tweet. IG. Facebook. Hashtag New York City is not for sale. Let's start picking the. Let's start pointing these motherfuckers out and making them famous. That's your first action. And re report back here for your next one. Okay. As one last act, I just want to say that this is an action-oriented space. We began today by an amazing conversation, but it doesn't end here, right? It doesn't end here. So if you could look up at your pamphlets, and there's a section that says, we will. And I'm going to, if everybody together can just read with me just the four highlights, just the broader points. You're not going to go into each one of them? All right. Get to know our neighborhoods. Repeat after myself. Get to know our neighborhoods. Get to know our neighborhoods. Boycott predatory actors. Support local economies and struggles. Support local economies and struggles. Amplify the NYC's people's housing plan. Please stay around. Round of applause to the panel. Round of applause to all the organizers that are actually leading this struggle. Stick around, meet each other, relationships are power, artists need to throw down. <laughs> <laughs>